Acts 8, verses 1 to 8. And Saul was consenting to his, that is, Stephen's death. And on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul laid waste the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the multitudes with one accord gave heed to what was said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs which he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I, I yearn for you to move now in these next 20 minutes or so on your people. Your word is truth. Sanctify us by the truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Make us free. The truth saves. Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Save, Father. Hold some back from sin, I pray, in this coming week. Humble those of us who need humbling. Quicken love in those of us who are drifting from it. Ignite a new fire in some who have grown cold. May some to whom Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom, come on inside. Lord, move now, I pray. Let the words of my mouth not be in vain, but by the grace and mercy of the Holy Spirit, may they have effect and power in changing lives. I ask now in, in the name of Jesus, our King, our Savior. Amen. January 9, 1985, there was a pastor in Bulgaria named Pastor Hristo Kulichev, a congregational pastor who was arrested and put in jail right away. His crime was that he was preaching in his own church, just like I am right now. And uh, the reason that was a crime is because the week before, the committee, the committee in the village had appointed a new pastor, the secular committee who runs the village, put a new pastor in there, even though this congregational church doesn't recognize any pastors, but the ones they elect and they install. So he went ahead preaching and they clamped him in jail immediately. And he immediately began to share Christ and to make the truth known while he was in prison. He had a trial. It was a mockery of justice. And he was then sentenced to eight months. And he did his eight months, got out temporarily, and he wrote these words. I say temporarily because there's another part of the story I don't have time to tell. He said, both prisoners and jailers asked many questions. And it turned out that we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in church. God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free, close quote. Now, there are a thousand stories like that in the world today, and there are more than a thousand over the years, centuries of church history. The lesson is very, very simple. 
God uses persecution and suffering to spread the truth of Christ and to bring blessing to the world. All of us in this church that I know who have served time in jail because of our involvement in the pro-life cause are glad we did and would say exactly the same thing that this pastor said. It was good for us and for those to whom we spoke in prison that we were there and we would do it again. In fact, I would even extend that and say the suit, the legal suit that is being brought against this church and against many of us in the church is going to serve for the advancement of righteousness and the truth of Christ. I don't have any doubt about that because I know the righteous cause for which it's being brought. We did right. And therefore, it will serve righteousness. And that will become clearer as we move through this text. The point of the text is that God rules over the sufferings of the church and causes them to spread spiritual power and the joy of faith to a lost world. It's not the only way that God spreads truth or spreads righteousness or spreads joy, but it seems to be an extraordinarily common way. He spurs the church on by suffering. He spurs us into ministry by suffering. And therefore, we must be very careful not to judge before the time How quick we are to judge, oh, a defeat, when in fact God is positioning the church through an apparent setback for some strategic advance. All you have to do is study how the war was won over in the Middle East, and there were feints, there were givings way that looked like, oh, there's weakness here. It was no weakness. It was a preparation for a greater Assault, And so it is with all the setbacks of the church governed by the sovereign goodness of God. Now, I want to break down this general truth that God overrules the sufferings of the church for the advancement of the gospel into four encouraging truths from this text. Number one, God makes persecution serve the Great Commission. That's the first. God makes the persecution of his church serve the Great Commission. Let's read verse one again, the second half of it. On that day, that is the day of Stephen's murder, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, up until now in the book of Acts, all the activity has happened in Jerusalem, hasn't it? Everything's been taking place in Jerusalem. Nobody, evidently, has left Jerusalem to go anywhere with the gospel. But there was a verse back in chapter 1, verse 8, that said, When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here they are still in Jerusalem until the persecution comes. And then what are the two places to which they're scattered? Judea and Samaria. Is that an accident? Luke, write that down as an accident. That's no accident. That's a clear teaching of Luke, the writer, that it took a persecution to get them off their rear end. And the amazing thing is that this is a good church. This is a powerful church. This is a Holy Spirit-blessed church in Jerusalem. But they're not doing evangelism outside Jerusalem. They're not seeing the unreached peoples out there. And so God will even take the apple of his eye. 
on whom he is pouring out his Holy Spirit in power in Jerusalem, if he must, to move them to the unreached. He will do whatever he must do to take a good church, ministering to one another and reaching their village. He will do whatever he must do to give them a world vision and to keep them moving. Chapter 11, verse 19, shows that Luke is going to play this out even further as he writes the story. Chapter 11, verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, same situation, traveled as far as Phoenicia. Now we're beyond Samaria, up the coast. And Cyprus, off the coast, the island, up there in the Mediterranean. And Antioch, right up near the bend of the Mediterranean Sea. Speaking the word to none except Jews. And then the next verse says, but in Antioch they began to speak to Greeks and the whole thing breaks open. And so here again, it was the persecution that was initiated under the suffering of Stephen that got the church going not only to Judea, not only to Samaria, but to the uttermost parts of the world out where the Gentiles are who have absolutely no access to the gospel unless a good, happy, self-satisfied church breaks out and inconveniences itself and loses its sons and daughters and goes. Now, the lesson here is uh, manifold. One we've already said, namely that God is sovereign and turns the setbacks of the church into triumphs for the Great Commission. But let me make it more specific and see if you would agree with these inferences. I would infer from this that uh, comfort, ease, affluence, prosperity, safety, security, freedom often cause a tremendous inertia in the church. You know what inertia is? Inertia. I forget what grade I learned inertia in, but I remember learning what inertia is. It's that something about an object which, if it's standing still, makes it want to stay still. See, it's hard to get going. And if it's moving, makes it want to keep moving, so it's harder to stop it. And I just think that... uh, Ease and comfort and safety and security and prosperity and luxury have the effect of producing tremendous spiritual stagnation and inertia in the church. It's ironic. The very things, I hear it in prayers, they're in my prayers. The very things that we think will produce personnel and resources and time and energy and prayer for the gospel because there's a free and we have so much. Don't do it. It doesn't work. Do you see this article in the Tribune this week? Poor give higher percent of income to churches than rich do, study says. The poorest fifth of the church members gave on an average of 3.4% of their income, while the wealthiest gave one point, the wealthiest fifth gave 1.6%. One half as much. The richer you get, the less you give. Only you don't think you're giving less because you're giving more in dollars. So it feels like you're giving a lot. As you get richer and richer and you give more and more and you're giving less and less 
And more and more is going to the bank, and more and more is going to the house, and more and more is going to the cabin, more and more is going to the cars, more and more is going to the toys. There seems a strange principle here, and it probably has to do with our sinfulness and the sufficiency of Jesus, that hard times, hard times, ironically, seem to beget more personnel, more prayer, more power, more open purses than easy times. Because easiness anesthetizes. It seems to anesthetize. Whereas when we're hurting, you can somehow feel that somebody else might be hurting. Isn't it ironic that the poor give more? Isn't it ironic that in hard times, I forget who told me recently that they weren't worried about the recession because people always give more to churches in recessions. Now, now I don't know if that's true, but... That person thought that historically, people seem to get near to spiritual realities when things are hard. And when you're near to spiritual realities when things are hard and your life is insecure, you start to take stock of your priorities and then you realize life isn't where money is anyway. And then, isn't it strange that the prosperity that was supposed to produce for the mission field does exactly the opposite? It's a strange thing. Now, I know, and I want to be careful here. That persecution is not to be naively celebrated or invited. It's not my point. I remember the parable of Jesus and the four soils. First soil, the word is plucked off the path by the devil. Second soil, sun comes out. Persecution arises and it falls away. Persecution hurts the church as well as mobilizing the church. But you know that third soil is, is the great danger in America. Remember what the third soil was? I'll read it to you. The cares of the world and the delight in riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So yes, I admit that persecution can bring harmful effects into the church and people can abort and apostatize. But frankly, in America today, in our situation, I think the third soil is the great danger. Namely, the desire for other things, the delight in riches, the cares of the world, anesthetizing the church, making us think that all is well when all is going to hell among the unreached peoples of the world and even in our own city. So the point is this. Let's be wary of prosperity. Set a cap on your lifestyle. Earn as much as you can. Give as much as you can. Become a conduit of resources to the mission field and line that conduit with copper, not with gold. And don't be disheartened if pain and persecution come because those are the mysterious maneuverings of the master sovereign strategist to set us up for a greater breakthrough like they did in Jerusalem. That's point number one. The second encouraging thing is this. Stephen is honored and not blamed by godly people. Stephen is honored and not blamed by godly people. You see, the persecution in Jerusalem was owing to Stephen's speech. He brought this on Jerusalem. 
Look, this is obvious here, but in chapter 11, verse 19, it says the persecution that arose over Stephen. The persecution that arose over Stephen. Now, I can imagine some cautious, prudent, well-meaning believers in Jerusalem saying behind closed doors, Stephen's speech was utterly uncalled for. There are less inflammatory ways to defend the truth than to say to the whole Sanhedrin that they are stiff-necked people and always resist the Holy Spirit. That's not what you should say to the Sanhedrin. It's always hotheads like this that get us in trouble as a church. Now the whole city's against us. How are you going to minister if the city's against you? Look at the waste of life and property and time. Look at the families that are being broken up as people get put in prison. Look at the children. What about the children being taken away from all their families? And now we've all got to live like refugees and exiles in Judea and Samaria. Why didn't Stephen think before he spoke? I wonder if anybody might talk like that. Well, now that's not God's version of the story. Luke wrote God's version of the story. And Luke says, he was a man full of grace and wisdom. A man full of the Holy Spirit and power. A man whose wisdom was irresistible. A man who in that last moment, check it, chapter 7, verse 55. A man who in that last moment when he opened his mouth to speak the words that caused his enemies to clamp their ears, gnash their teeth, rush upon him and decimate the church in Jerusalem. He was at that moment filled with the Holy Spirit. And he brought it on the church filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 2 is Luke's tribute to this man. He put no innuendo of correction. Why didn't he soften his tones to the Sanhedrin and avoid persecution? Not a whiff in the book of Acts like that. Just this. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. I hear three things. They were devout, not worldly. Worldly people say, what about our church? What about our possessions? What about our safety? What about our effectiveness? Not what about the truth? But godly people risk their lives and bury him and make a great lamentation over him. And therefore, my... Second encouragement to you is this. If in your service of the Lord, by virtue of courage, boldness, faithfulness, and obedience, you come into trouble and others with you, mark this. Devout people, devout people will not blame you. They'll honor you. Worldly people will blame you. Third, sometimes our worst enemies become our best friends. Sometimes our worst enemies become our best friends. You see that in verse 3 like I do? Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, 
He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And that Saul is the same Saul who, in just a few weeks, would be so dramatically converted that he would become the greatest advocate that Christianity has ever had in the history of the world. (laughs) I love it. And I need it so bad. I need to hear this. You know why? Because by experience and by temperament, I, and I think I speak for the average human being, find it so easy to believe that the closest friends can become enemies. Judas. I can believe in Judas. I've seen that happen. It's, that's the way the world is, right? Betrayal. But we need help to believe that the opposite happens, and it does. I've seen it happen. That the worst critic can become the closest comrade. That enemies can become friends. That adversaries can become advocates. It happens. Because that's the way God is. And so I just encourage you. One of the men who left the service after the first hour thanked me just for that little point because he said, there's a man at work and I'd just about thrown in the towel on his foul mouth and enmity towards me and the gospel and everything. And I just I feel a new sense of hope to press on in prayer that God can do it. And I want you to feel hope like that. I want you to believe that if a song Breathing out murders and threats, hating the gospel. I mean, nobody was more opposed to you or the gospel than Paul was opposed. If Paul can get saved, anybody can get saved. In fact, he said that in 1 Timothy 1, 16 and 17. The reason I got saved is to show that the patience of Christ will work for anybody. That's what he said. That's why God chose him like he was. So that's number three. Be encouraged to look through the eyes of faith that the people you're about to give up on in the church, in your family, at work, because they're just so hostile, so deeply against you or against the gospel, there's hope. There is hope. Light can break forth out of heaven and knock them off their donkeys and grant them to be saved. Number four. Finally, even though the word of God brought persecution and exile, it also brings joy. The same word that brings persecution brings joy. Let me try to show you this in in the paragraph that begins with verse 4, closes with verse 8. Let's look at those two verses. First, verse 4 says that they were scattered and they went through these places preaching the word. And the word for preaching there means preaching it as good news, gospeling it. And so this word that had caused them so much pain, they had to leave home. They're going around saying, hear the good news, hear the good news. These these are strange people. That this word that had cost them their homeland, cost them their families, cost them their security, cost them who knows what, they're now proclaiming that very word as good news. And look at the effect in verse 8. So there was much joy in that city where Philip was doing that proclamation. It does work. It is good news. Now, why? Why is it? Well, three things at least are mentioned just briefly. In verse 7, it says, unclean spirits were coming out of people when this word was preached. 
So people were being freed and cleansed and made whole and pure. They didn't have to carry that bondage, that oppression of the devil, those enslavements, those obsessions anymore. They were being freed by the gospel. And secondly, the paralyzed and the lame were being healed. And thirdly, and this is the summary and most important point, I think, in verse 5, Philip went down to a city of Samaria and there proclaimed to them Christ. Christ. Christ is the only one who has the power to destroy the works of the devil and to free people. Christ is the only one who has power to heal both now in this age and in the resurrection in the age to come finally and decisively when all tears and all pain and all death are put away. And Christ is the only one who can forgive us of our sins and make us right with God. And therefore, when Philip preached the Christ, he, as it were, offered everything to the people in Samaria. So the way I want to close is by just encouraging you, urging you, pleading with you to receive. And if you have, hold fast to Christ as the sum of everything in life. Because if you have Christ, no matter how great the persecution, no matter how great the suffering, you have hope and you have a joy that can never end. You see, sometimes... Belonging to Christ brings persecution, but always belonging to Christ brings joy. And the always lasts forever, whereas the persecution is temporary. Even if, like Stephen, you have to die, it's temporary because you enter into glory and your joy never, never, never ends. The joy that began in this city, there was much joy in that city, never ended. It lasts today. In heaven, those people are still rejoicing because Philip came and preached the word that brought persecution for some, but joy for all who believed. And so embrace Christ and these four encouragements that I've given you from this text will not only be true sort of in general out there, they will be true personally for you. Let me state them as we close. Number one, God makes persecution serve the unstoppable mission of the church. Number two, if your faithfulness brings you into trouble and others with you, godly people will not blame you. They will honor you. Third, your worst critics, your worst enemies may become your closest friends and best supporters by the grace of God. And finally, the very word that can sometimes bring persecution will always bring hope. And joy, because it is the word of Christ and his forgiveness and his everlasting promise of life. Let's pray. As always, we're going to have a couple of teams of people standing at the front here ready to pray with you. And if God has touched you and filled you with some longing that you would like somebody to pray into your life, Feel free in the 15 minutes between now and the next service to, to pray with them here at the front. If you need Jesus, they'd love to pray with you about that. If you need healing from any bodily ailment, they'd love to ask God to touch your body. If you need any kind of reconciling help or strength, problem at work, worked on. Father in heaven, I just thank you so much that you're sovereign over the, the sufferings of the church and that you turn them for the good of mission. 
And I thank you so much that the word of Christ, though it can bring pain, always brings joy, always brings hope that lasts forever and ever. We bless you. As a church, we lift our voices to you and say, we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. You are our shepherd, and we will follow you this week, wherever you lead. And all the people said, Amen.